So we are in Second Thessalonians again this morning as we kind of wind down our short little uh, six-week series. This is uh, the second to last week. Our big picture theme for this series has been the call to stand firm. Right? We've seen that the church in Thessalonica is a strong church, a healthy church, but now there are some threats to their stability. There's these false rumors that are spreading about the second coming of Christ, as we'll read next week. Some in the church have given in to laziness and idleness. And so this morning, as we read from chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, we're going to see Paul grounds them in the faithfulness of God. And he's first going to ask them to pray. He's going to say, will you pray for for us and for our ministry? Pray that the gospel would advance. Pray that we would be delivered from evil. And then he's going to express his heart for them, that they would, the Thessalonians, would walk in obedience and walk in endurance. But but, but between these two sections, the centerpiece of the text is this, this, this reality, Paul will say, not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. That's our, our big key theme for this morning. And that's the basis of our hope. That's the basis. That's the driving force of our prayers. That's the foundation, how we can stand firm, how we can live as Christians is that the Lord is faithful. Amen. So I'm going to pray and then we'll read together these five verses from the word of God. Good God in heaven, we thank you for what you're doing here among us. We thank you for a Sunday to celebrate and to look ahead to what you're planning to do in and through us in another part of our country. We thank you for this body of believers. We thank you for this house of worship. We thank you for your word that that feeds us, that directs us, that nourishes us. And would you now speak to us through your word? For those that came in discouraged this morning, God, lift their spirits. For those that came in hopeless and faithless, God, bring them faith. For those that came in distracted and numb, God, would you grab their hearts and direct them to the love of God and to the endurance of Christ, that we could walk with you and live for you, not coasting until heaven, but living every day in active obedience, proclaiming your gospel, living for your glory. Be present now as we read and as we unpack your word. Come Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So he says there in, in verse 1, finally, okay, he's wrapping up, this is the last section, and he begins by asking for prayer, asking for prayer for Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They want the church in Thessalonica to pray for them, to pray that the word of the Lord, that the, the word of God, the gospel, would speed ahead, it says, and be honored just as it did among you, just as it did in your town. They pray that the Word of God would would go out. What is the Word of God? What is the Gospel? The good news that, that we here at Living Hope exalt and proclaim the good news that we've given our life to, the good news that is the, the beginning, middle, and end of, of every chapter of the Word of God is the Gospel, the good news that we can have freedom. You can have freedom from your life of sin and darkness and discouragement, a life of separation. You can 
have freedom from death and you can enter into a new relationship, a new covenant with God, with your Creator, a new life in Him, a life that begins now, that goes on into eternity. And at the center of this gospel message, this good news of freedom from a life of sin and death and an entrance into a life in relationship with God and eternal life, at the center of that is the life, death, and resurrection and return of our Lord Jesus, our Messiah. That He came and lived on this life. Not just to demonstrate, you know, what a good person would look like, but to live a righteous life for us on our behalf, to die on the cross as a substitute for us, taking on the penalty that you and I deserve, rising from the dead, rising from the dead in victory over sin, death, and the devil. And now when we come in faith and give ourselves to Christ, He takes our sin and our brokenness and and, and through His death, we're set free and through His resurrection, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with new life. And He's returning again one day, the Scriptures promised, to make all things right, to finally put down evil and to bring us fully and finally into eternal life in God's presence. That is the gospel. That's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy asked the Thessalonians to pray that would be advanced. And that's what we pray would be advanced among us and in our community and in God's world. And and he says to them, pray for this as happened among you. Because what happened in the city of Thessalonica continues to be noteworthy. Because when the gospel was proclaimed there, people believed it. And lives were transformed. And a church was planted in that city. And the whole city was upended. And from them, from the city of Thessalonica, the gospel is now going out. Their testimony and their word is going out to the surrounding region. In the first letter, we heard that the word of the Lord was ringing out from among the church in Thessalonica. And so now Paul, Silas, and Timothy say, we want to see the gospel flourish everywhere else, just like it flourished among you. And who better to pray? Who better to pray that God's work would advance than the people who are already experiencing it, right? Can can I just pause for a minute and tell you, friends, if God is working in your life and you're seeing victory and you're seeing progress and you're seeing the joy and the peace of God and you're seeing fruit in your life, yes, it's a time for thanksgiving. But you know what? It's also a time for you to pray. And they say, God, what you've done in me, will you do in in this brother or sister that's hurting? Will you do in in my neighbor? Will you do in my coworker? The the advance that that I've seen your spirit do in my own heart and my own life, you can then pray that God would do that in other places. We can pray that the same provision, the same unity that we've seen here at Living Hope would advance to other churches. That the Mejias would take what the Lord's done here and bring that to the people of Chandler. We can pray that the same transformation that we've seen in in other regions would advance to other places that are in darkness. That maybe you've experienced a period of freedom, freedom and healing in your heart. Yes, give thanks. Yes, celebrate that. And now pray for someone else that's hurting in the same way that the, the gospel and the work of Jesus would advance in their lives as well. Now they ask two specific things, two specific ways they want to see the word of God make an impact. They, they say pray that it would speed ahead and pray that it would be honored. Pray that the gospel, the word of the Lord would speed ahead. That means spread rapidly across the region. That early first century Mediterranean world as as the gospel went out, as lives were changed. Literally to spread rapidly means to run. Pray that the word of God, the gospel would run ahead, rush forward, that it would expand and advance, that that the gospel would see unhindered progress in the lives of people. So I, I was thinking this week about like a group of runners on a high school track. At a high school track meet some of you run track or have kids in track. You imagine that the runners, I don't know how many it is, 12, how many runners are there? 15, whatever. Um, 
and, and they're all lined up, they're ready to go, the gun goes off, and all of a sudden, there's somebody that like is clearly ahead, takes the lead, and you look and you notice, oh, it's Hussein Bolt, no wonder. How did he show up at this high school track read, right? And this guy just is blowing past everybody, just running ahead, just speeding ahead against everybody else, and he wins, you know, by like two minutes. That's what Paul's saying. Would you pray that the gospel would speed ahead and spread rapidly, far above every other worldview, every other concept and religion, every other selfish urge that the gospel would spread rapidly. See, when the word of the Lord is unleashed, it takes on a life of its own. Beyond our meager efforts, the truth of Christ can spread rapidly by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what, what's the result? What result do we pray? That as the word spreads, what do we want to happen? We want that those who hear it, that their hearts would honor the Word of God. That's the second thing they ask us to pray for. That the Word of God would speed ahead and be honored. That means to be recognized as a saving truth that it is. So when someone hears the gospel and they don't believe it and they turn it down, they're dishonoring the gospel. We want to pray that the gospel would be honored, that it would be received in people's hearts, that it would be lifted up and embraced, that it would be glorified in the hearts of of broken people, that people would hear it and they would give praise to God. For the work of Christ. See, there's only one way that the gospel can spread rapidly across a community. And it's not through multimedia. It's not through billboards. It's not through tracks. It's not through forcing people to come to church. It's not through, through elevating, you know, your attendance numbers. The gospel spreads when it takes root in a person's heart. One person at a time. Churches are formed. Communities are changed. Nations are transformed when one person at a time receives the gospel and shares it with one other person. That's how the gospel spreads. In the weeks to come, in your life group, uh, our, our, our elder Chris, under his leadership in your life groups, we're going to be asking each of you to, to begin to make a prayer list of friends and family that need Jesus. And each of your life groups is, is going to write down the names. Who are you praying for? Who do we want to see the Lord work in? And I have a, a, a friend on my street, a neighbor, that I've been praying for and, and talking to, and I'm going to put his name on that list, and I'm going to pray, God, would the gospel advance into this man and his family? Would the gospel be honored in his heart and in that home? Can we pray together as a community, as life groups, as accountability groups, as ministry teams? Can we pray that the gospel would spread rapidly across southern York County and northern Baltimore County? I heard, I heard yesterday about a, a, a brother... Um, I can't even remember what, what state he's in, but, but he wrote a book called uh, Small Town Jesus. And he lives in a rural county, 10,000 people in his county. And for something around the last 10 years, he's been planting churches, and those churches have planted other churches. There's now about a dozen churches in this rural county. I think it's somewhere down like North Carolina, South Carolina. And now there are 2,000 people in this rural county that are in one of the churches that this little network has, has planted. That's a that's a, a a fifth of the people that have now come to Christ and growing in this this little rural community because people prayed and people shared and the gospel did its work. So they pray and they ask them to pray that the gospel would advance through their ministry. But they also ask them for prayer. Look at verse two. Paul, Silas, and Timothy say, "Would you pray?" that we would see God's deliverance because there are opponents that are attacking us and we need deliverance from the opponents of the gospel. See, this request is much more personal. 
Paul, Silas, and Timothy continue to face great opposition to their ministry. In Thessalonica, you might remember that they had been accused in that city of stirring up civil unrest. And they had been violently driven out of town. But that same opposition continues from both unbelieving Jews and from the Romans in their ministry. See, in the early church, in the, in the first century, the Jews thought that Christians were heretics. They thought that they were blaspheming God, claiming that a man, human, was the Son of God. Because the unbelieving Jews rejected that Jesus was the Messiah. But the other thing that was going on in the early first century was that early on, Christianity was considered a sect of Judaism. And so when Christianity spread and caused trouble, it actually came, came down on the Jewish leaders. And the Jews that had a certain degree of stability in the Roman world and a certain degree of, of power in the Roman world, they were kind of left alone to practice their religion. They were worried, well, if Christianity threads, spreads, it's going to threaten our stability and threaten our influence as Jewish leaders. And so the Jews were opposing the Christians, but the Romans also hated the spread of the gospel. See, because Christians would no longer bow to Caesar. And everywhere Christianity spread in the Roman world, civilization as they knew it was upended. And there were unacceptable things happening in society in the Greco-Roman world. Because where churches were planted and Christianity spread, idol craftsmen, people that made their living crafting idols and selling them, would go out of business. Drinking and prostitution in those towns would decrease. Husbands began to be faithful to their wives and, and only sleep with their wives. And, and they began to, to adopt orphans. And they began to care for the poor. And all of this the Romans couldn't handle. They didn't want any of this. It went against their, their ideology, their, their culture, their philosophy of, of, of strength and power. How could Christians care for the weak? And so they faced persecution at the hands of wicked people, we read. And Christians in the early church were economically cut off, some of them physically harmed, they were socially ostracized, and many of them faced criminal charges. And things only got worse from this time period. And we know that throughout history, over the last 2,000 years, that as the gospels advanced, persecution has also spread. And why is this happening? Why are Christians seen as a threat? Why are Christians being persecuted? What does verse 2 say? This very simple truth at the end of verse 2. Not all have faith. Not, not all believe in Jesus. Now here's the Apostle Paul facing persecution, facing the threat of, of arrest and capital punishment. That's quite an understatement. Well, yeah, Paul, not all have faith, considering there are people that want to arrest you and put you to death. See, but for a, for a person that still exalts a false god, a person that is still living according to the standards of the world, the Christian message, the Christian gospel, and Christians themselves are a threat. Because people that do not have faith see this beautiful gospel as threatening who they are. Now you say, but, but faith is so obvious. Christ, Christians say, well, it just makes so much sense. Of course there's a creator. Of course I want to know my creator. Of course I can't get to him on myself. Of course I need a mediator. I need a savior. Of course the Bible is, is consistent and is effective. And of course G, the work of Jesus in my life makes a difference. It seems obvious to us. It seems like it's the only reasonable path to take. How could you not have faith? But, but can we just acknowledge the simple reality for a moment that not all believe, not all people have faith. Some live in this world based upon what they can only see, feel, and touch. Some are blind to the truth of the gospel because they don't want to believe it. They don't want to believe that God loves them. They don't want to find life in Christ. They don't want to give authority over their lives to someone else. And so they reject God. Not all are going to believe. Some in this world are going to continue to reject God. They're going to continue to love the world. 
They are going to continue to want to be their own Lord. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 7. Look at this verse on the screen. He said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and you have faith, Jesus said, you've entered by the narrow gate. It's it's a hard road, but it leads to life. There may be few who find it, but it's a road that leads to life. If you're here today and you're on that wide, easy path, Jesus says it leads to destruction. It leads to to, to sin and, and hurt and pain in this life and eternal separation from God and destruction in the next life. And yes, not all have faith. But I pray and I hope that you hear the gospel, that this morning you receive the gospel, that those who maybe are watching this online, maybe somebody sent you this clip, and that narrow gate seems hard to believe, and the road following Jesus may seem too hard, but it's the road of life. Pray and ask the Lord to give you faith. Pray and ask the Lord to overcome your doubts, to fall down in faith on Him and say, I believe, help my unbelief. I cannot do it on my own. I need a Savior. Now, there are some that not only don't have faith, but they become opponents to the gospel. They bring persecution and affliction on other Christians. And as we've talked about in in recent weeks, you and I, for the most part, don't experience severe persecution or affliction for our faith in Jesus. But we always have an enemy. Our enemy, Satan, is always standing against us. Always attacking us. Always seeking to threaten our faith. And so they ask in verse 2 for prayers. Prayers that they would be delivered rescued from their terrible circumstances, the afflictions that they're facing. And can I just say for a minute, it's not unspiritual to ask God to change the circumstances, right? Like I think sometimes we think, well, yeah, marriage is hard and job is hard and I'm sick and and the kids are in rebellion and, and life's a mess and I'm facing pressure and I just need to pray for patience and pray for endurance. Look, Paul's going to talk about that in a minute, but you know what he's praying for here in this verse? Pray that we would be delivered from wicked and evil men. I I think he means that the the persecution would stop. That the Romans would back off. That they would stop seeking his arrest. That the Jews would come to faith and stop beating him. He, He says, Lord, just deliver me. Rescue me. And that's a good thing to pray. Yes, we're going to talk in a minute about obedience and about endurance. But we can also pray, God, change these circumstances. Rescue me. Rescue my children. Rescue the ones that I love from this evil that I'm facing. Deliver me from wicked men and evil circumstances. And we pray for our sovereign God to work in our, in our lives and across the world. For the last 2,000 years, the gospel has been spreading. The gospel has been advancing across the globe. And every place where it advances, there are opponents that seek to stop the progress. Back in 1991... The the nation of Ukraine gained independence from communist Russia. And at that moment, religious liberty followed and a door to the gospel was opened in the nation of Ukraine in 1991. Now, many Ukrainians, even before and, and now, identify as Russian Orthodox, but it's just a nominal cultural affiliation at best. But over the last 30 years, since religious liberty has has opened up in Ukraine, there's been a minority of Jesus-loving missionaries and native Christians that have been planting churches in Ukraine. They've been 
taking books that you and I read on the Gospel Coalition and John Piper books, they've been translating them into their own language. Seminaries have been started in the last 30 years teaching people how to proclaim the Gospel, how to lead. The Word has been spreading and, and, and they've seen the Gospel advance in that nation. In fact, now there are churches in Ukraine that have begun to send missionaries out to other parts of the world. Isn't that amazing? But then you go back to 2014 when, when Russia annexed Crimea. Churches that were not registered, that were not officially registered by the government, faced persecution. And at the same time, I didn't even know about this until I was reading this week, at the same time, Russian separatists in the um, southeast region of Ukraine, they started this slow-burning war. And since 2014, there have been 14,000 people that have, that have died in this conflict in the southeast region. As, as these Russian separatists stir up violence. And churches in that region have been destroyed. They have been closed down. And now, as the nation of, of Ukraine prepares for the possibility of a Russian invasion and war, many U.S. and foreign missionaries are fleeing the country. And some of them, mind you, are doing it against their own will. I heard an interview this week from a Russian, or excuse me, from a, a U.S. missionary in Ukraine who's saying, I'm leaving because my missionary agency is, is, is requiring me to leave, but I don't want to leave. I want to stay with the people that I love. But of course, the Ukrainian Christians don't have that opportunity. They don't have the opportunity to get on a, on a flight or to drive to a safe country in Europe. And yet the people there are used to hardship. And so they are preparing themselves for, for the difficulty that may lay ahead. They are preparing themselves as a church, as a people, to stand firm in the faith. And what, what we're already starting to see is that churches in the western part of Ukraine are now preparing temporary shelters because they know that refugees are coming and, and people are fleeing the borders in the east and they're coming to the west and the churches in the west are saying, we'll, we'll house you, we'll care for you, we'll share Jesus with you, and we'll love you. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray for the nation of Ukraine. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters that are there, that they would be delivered from war, that they would be delivered from the persecution that will come if there is war. Because there are forces at work that would like to see those churches shut down and burned down and those pastors arrested as many in the eastern part of that nation have already faced. But we pray that in the midst of, of a tense, uncertain situation there, we pray that their hearts would be open, that these refugees, that the uncertainty of, of war would open up their hearts. That yes, we pray that the opponents of the gospel would be stopped, but we pray that in the midst of this, that the gospel would advance. That God would use this uncertainty, and if, if war comes, he would use that tragedy to advance the gospel. Just as, 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 as Paul and Silas and Timothy asked for prayer for the, from the Thessalonians, for the gospel to, to advance in the Mediterranean world, for persecution to stop, we now pray. And we could name nation after nation after nation facing similar circumstances. And we pray that the gospel would advance. We pray that those who face persecution would be delivered. That God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? And as we pray, our prayers are grounded in the certainty that the Lord is faithful. See, verse 2 ends with this hard reality that not all have faith, but, but verse 3 begins with our greatest hope of all, that the Lord is faithful. See, verses 2 and 3 got to go together. Not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. Now, both of those things are true. Both of those things are true, and you can experience either of those realities on a daily basis. You can, you can come up against people that don't have faith, that make life hard for you, and you can become aware of the Lord's faithfulness and His love and His grace in your life. And you have to decide 
Because every single one of us has to decide, which is going to be my central reality? What is going to determine my outlook on life? Am I going to be discouraged and, and, and downtrodden because not all have faith? Or am I going to be a person of hope and of faith, knowing that the Lord is faithful? Where are you going to dwell? I'm not saying both things aren't true. I'm not saying you're not going to have to, to, to confront the reality that people are not following Jesus and it makes life hard. But I'm saying, where are you going to dwell? Where is your heart going to land? What is going to be that, that outlook that sets the course of your life? The Lord is faithful. Re- return now to the, to the text in verse 3. Paul now, after he asked for prayer for himself, he, in verse 3, begins to give some encouragement to the Thessalonians. It says there, because the Lord is faithful, we can have confidence in His work in us. We can have confidence that He will establish you and strengthen you in His love and grace, Paul says about the Christians in Thessalonica. We also believe and have confidence that God's going to guard you, that He's going to protect you from the evil one, from all evil. See, as we've already said, our enemy Satan is at work. And so they write there in verse 3 that the Lord would guard you against the evil one. There are three primary ways that Satan works. He doesn't have a lot of tricks. It's the same things he's been doing since the dawn of time. Temptation. He can seek to lure you into sin. Deception. He can try to convince you that the things of God are not true and convince you to believe a lie. And accusation. He can beat you up with guilt and shame. Temptation, deception, and accusation. That's how the the enemy works. And yet we can trust that the Lord would guard us. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we pray that every day. We pray that because Jesus himself prayed that for us. In John's gospel, Jesus prayed for Christians. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Some of us are like, well, couldn't you have asked for that? That would have been better, God. Couldn't I have just believed in you and immediately been zapped up away from the hardship of this life? He says, no, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus even now intercedes for us that you would be protected from temptation, from deception, from the accusations of the enemy. God will establish you in his love. He will guard you. You can stand firm. Why? Why? Because the Lord is faithful. The Lord who drew you, who gave you faith, who rescued you from darkness, brought you into light. He will guard you. He will sustain you even in your darkest hour, even in your moments of weakest faith. And so verse 4 says, in light of God's faithfulness, the leaders there write, we have confidence. We have confidence in the Lord about you, these Christians, that you will walk in obedience. They are confident that these Christians will remain obedient. See, they already are doing the will of God, the Christians in this church. And they're certain, they're confident, they'll continue to do the will of God. They'll continue to do all that the apostles have commanded, all that they've instructed them to do. What are the instructions in this letter? To stand firm in the faith. Don't be shaken by false rumors. Wait with hope for the return of Jesus. We'll read next week their instructions to to not give in to idleness. They say, we're confident you'll be obedient in that. Friends, where specifically is God calling you to walk in obedience? This letter was written to a church that needed obedience in these areas, and most of these are relevant to us. But specifically, what is it in this letter? What is it in another area of God's Word? What command, what instruction has the Lord given you and saying, be obedient? 
be obedient because it's good, because it's right, because I am faithful. How is the Lord calling you to walk in obedience? Are you confident that you're going to continue in obedience? You're like, I had a pretty good day yesterday, but I just have a feeling today is going to be one of those bad days. And I might listen to some of those tempting lies of the enemy. And I might be a little more grumpy and a little more snippy with my family than I should. And I may watch some things that I know I shouldn't because it comforts me. And I may have a little bit more to drink tonight after the kids go to bed because I just had a, had a hard week. Are you confident in the Lord's obedience in you? They, they say here in, in, this, in the scripture in verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord about you. Where is their confidence? Are they confident that these Christians are going to continue in obedience? Because they're like, man, these Thessalonians, they got it all together. They memorized all their Bible verses. They're, they have their shirts buttoned all the way to the top. They're good to go. No. They, their confidence is not in the, the Thessalonians. Maybe, maybe, maybe Paul is just channeling the power of positive thinking you know he's just believing good things will happen i I believe you guys will be okay no they're confident in the lord it says in verse four they are confident because the lord is faithful that's where our confidence comes from some some of you are just naturally confidence confidence doesn't come hard to you this may or may not be a surprise to you but but i'm not naturally a confident person i tend to be self-conscious I tend to overthink things. I tend to worry about things. I tend to second-guess myself. And when I was younger, I learned to overcompensate for this with an artificial self-confidence, with attention-seeking, to build up that, that inner turmoil. So, so when I was in college, I was confident that I could drive to see my, my friend in Chicago, didn't need help, didn't need directions, I could find my way until I saw signs welcoming me to Cincinnati. Then I realized I was probably a little overconfident. My first year of marriage, I had this, this, this fun, exciting idea. Uh, New Year's Eve, we had a big party across the street from our apartment. And I was confident Karen was going to love this idea. Me and a buddy snuck over to our apartment about quarter of midnight. And, and he shaved my head and bicked it clean. And I walked back into that party with a, with a hat on. And at midnight, I pulled my hat off. Confident Karen was just going to think it was the most endearing thing in the world. She turned and walked away from me without saying a word. <laughs> In my first church internship, I was confident that the best way to raise volunteer signups for that summer's VBS, by the way, the theme of that summer was scuba. So I was confident that the best way for me to raise volunteers was to put on a wetsuit and fill up a baby pool in the parking lot so that when people came out of church, I would splash around in the baby pool, encouraging them to sign up for volunteers. I I did not earn any points with the elders that day, right? But over years, I've had to learn that I can't overcompensate for inner turmoil and, and, and worry and self-consciousness with an artificial self-confidence, with attention-seeking behavior. I've had to learn that true godly confidence means humble, a humble confidence, a confident humility. Confident, not in my own self, but confident in God, confident in God's work in me and God's work in you. See, if we ground ourselves in the faithfulness of God, that will build our confidence, our confidence in ourselves and one another. Confidence that God is at work. God will do his work. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 3. Such confidence, listen to this, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves, To consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is in Christ, listen to this, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit 
brings life. See, it's not just that Jesus is adequate, it's that he made us adequate, sufficient, righteous before God. We can now stand in confidence before God because through Christ, we have been forgiven and we have been made complete. And so if you can stand before the throne of God, if you can stand before the creator of the universe with confidence, knowing that he loves you, knowing that you're forgiven, knowing that you're a part of his family, knowing that when you pray, he hears you, if you can have confidence before God, how can we not have confidence before the world. Furthermore, we can be confident about one another. See, it's from this perspective that that they can write in this letter, we have confidence in the Lord about you. Because God is faithful, we can be confident in his work, his work in the world, his work in our hearts, his work in our church, his work in Chandler, Arizona, his work in our life group ministries, his work in our youth ministry. Because in Christ, we've been made adequate. That's where our confidence lies. We can stand firm because we know that God is firm. Amen? As we heard in the first letter of Thessalonians, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. You say, but my faith struggles. I I know. You say, but the world sometimes is tempting to me. I know. You say, but sometimes I'm just too tired. I, I know. But he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. And so in verse 5, with their confidence firmly grounded in the Lord, they then pray, they pray again for the Christians in Thessalonica. May the Lord himself direct and lead your hearts, your heart, that's the core of who you are, to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Jesus. Friends, we need to know the Father's love. And I pray this morning that your heart would know the love of God. That you would sit in his love and soak in his love and and remain in the love of God the Father. That no matter what falls down around you, no matter how much you crave love from others that never seem to give it in the right way, that you would know and truly experience that your creator, your Father, loves you. Jesus came for you. And that as you receive and are filled with the love of God, that that would build your confidence and that that love would spill out into others. You say, but they're not lovable. Well, you weren't lovable either when the Father loved you. You say, well, they don't love me in return. God's love is independent on you loving him in return. And so as we receive and as we soak and as we are filled up in the love of God, it spills out over to our spouses, to our children, to our siblings, to our teammates and classmates and neighbors. Know the love of God. And it says there in verse 5 that you would have the endurance of the Lord Jesus, that he, that our hearts would be led to the steadfastness, another way of saying that is endurance, that we would have the same endurance that the Lord Jesus had. See, Jesus models endurance for us in the way that he lived, in the way that he walked in obedience, the way that he loved, the way that he stayed on mission in life. You think things are hard for you? You think it's hard for you to follow the will of God? Imagine what it was like for Jesus, but he endured. So he, he models endurance for us, but more than that, through the infilling of the Holy Spirit, he imparts endurance to us. The same Holy Spirit that, that drove Jesus now fills in us to drive us, to give us endurance. What are you facing? What are you facing this week, this month, this year? For some of you, it's, it's, life, it's this life. I've been dealing with this my whole life. What parenting challenges are you facing? What health Issues never seem to go away. Young people, what peer pressure are you facing that just seems too hard to resist? What doubts fill your head and fill your heart? Where do you need endurance? We can pray. 
We can pray that the Lord would direct our hearts to the love of God and to the endurance of Christ. Why? Why can we pray this? Why can we have certainty that the Lord hears us and He will answer us? Why? Because the Lord is faithful. Listen to what the author of Hebrew writes in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that means men and women for generations that have gone before us, walking in the love of God, enduring amidst hardship, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which so clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, he is seated even now at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let us run with endurance, just as Jesus ran. Let us not grow weary. Jesus ran ahead of us to show us the way and to pull us along, to fill us and to give us grace and strength to walk in the will of God. Will you pray with me as the worship team comes? God, we ask, just as you're word directs us, we ask that the word of the Lord, the gospel would speed ahead, would spread rapidly. Would you advance the gospel? We pray for those of us here today that have unbelieving children, unbelieving spouses, unbelieving parents. We ask that the gospel would advance into their lives. We pray for our friends and co-workers and teammates and schoolmates and neighbors that you would use us to plant seeds, yes, to pray, yes, to model love, yes, but also to speak truth, to invite them into the good news of freedom from sin, of life with God. We pray that the gospel would spread rapidly to Chandler, Arizona. We thank you for Anchor Church that's partnering with us. We thank you for the leader of that kids' ministry. We thank you for the principal of that elementary school that's been praying for who knows how many years with the gospel spread there. We pray even now, God, for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, many in the eastern part of the country that have already been facing persecution and hardship, others that are preparing for that reality. We pray for those churches that they would stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would be a light, that they would welcome refugees, that they would be a place of care and love. And we pray, God, that you would rescue those that are facing affliction, that you would rescue those who are facing opposition and persecution, whether it be here in our community, whether it be in our nation, whether it be in other parts of the world. We pray, God, that you would rescue, that you would change circumstances, that you would put an end. Even now, God, as there may be civil authorities, as there's uh, religious leaders of of other sects that have plans in place to bring persecution and arrest and violence and hardship on our brothers and sisters, would you rescue them? Would you deliver them? Give us strength to walk in obedience. Give us strength to be faithful, to obey every commandment in your word. Change our desires. Change our hearts. Give us endurance, Lord, that we would remain steadfast, that we would persevere, that we would be a people that would live for you. Even when we fail, we'd ask you for the grace to stand back up again, to endure, to persevere through whatever we face in this life. We proclaim that you're faithful. We proclaim that you are steadfast, that you never waver, that you never falter, that you always accomplish what you set out. And so we can stand firm and we can follow you knowing that you are faithful, that you are steadfast, that you are solid. Hear us now as we worship. Fill us with faith. Encourage us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.